Happy Nurses Week to all the nurses and future nurses listening. To celebrate, I'm having a 20% off sale on Study Sesh. This is my private podcast that features over 140 episodes to help you study on the go. Formats include pod quizzes, power hour deep dives, drills, and case studies. If you're tired of sitting at your desk or staring at a screen, but still want to review for nursing school, it's time to check out Study Sesh. Go to straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in that top menu bar. That's straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in the menu bar. See you there. Well, hello there. I'm Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I teach concepts and share tips on how to thrive in nursing school and at the bedside. So in this episode today, we're going to be taking a little bit of a deepish dive into the basic metabolic panel, what the components are, and why you as the nurse care. Before we dive into that, let's take a quick minute for the listener shout out. This one goes out to initials WMO, and this listener says this, I have been following Nurse Mo since the very beginning of my pre-nursing journey. As a second degree student, I was desperate to find useful information to better understand nursing-related topics and make sure it was the right move for me. For over a year now, Nurse Mo has been like an encouraging voice in my head and ear. I started with the Straight Nursing Podcast and have since registered for Crucial Concepts Bootcamp and Study Sesh. I will be starting my ABSN program in a week and honestly couldn't feel more prepared. Thank you so very much, WMO, for taking the time to write and let me know how the podcast and boot camp and even study sesh are already helping you feel ready for a very intense, but hopefully for you, fun program. Okay, let's dive into the basic metabolic panel, which is one of the most common lab tests that you'll see ordered for your patients. You'll also hear it called a BMP. Sometimes you'll hear it called a CHEM-7, though technically there are eight components of the BMP, but commonly you may hear it called a CHEM-7, which doesn't include one of the components. So the components of the BMP are sodium, potassium, calcium, chloride, carbon dioxide, glucose, BUN, and creatinine. And if you're looking at a CHEM-7, it doesn't include calcium. And basically what these different components are going to do is just provide kind of a nice overview of information about your patient's conditions. So let's take a look at each of these components. First is sodium. So as you remember, sodium is the most abundant extracellular cation, meaning it's positively charged, and the biggest contributor to serum osmolality. The body maintains sodium balance through a variety of mechanisms. So one of those is antidiuretic hormone, which controls the reabsorption of water, which in turn affects serum sodium levels. Aldosterone causes the body to hold on to sodium by decreasing renal excretion of sodium, and natriuretic hormone causes the kidneys to excrete more sodium. 
Sodium is very closely tied to water balance in the body. So when you think sodium, I want you to think water. For example, if an individual is dehydrated, so fluid volume very low, then sodium levels are going to be increased because it's more concentrated. The blood serum is more concentrated. In this case, the kidneys would work to compensate by holding on to more water. In a patient with hypervolemia, and that's hypervolemia in the vascular space, sodium levels are decreased because of dilution. In this case, the kidneys work to maintain balance by excreting water and holding on to the sodium. So both hypo and hypernatremia can occur in the clinical setting, but hyponatremia is far more common. It's also important to note that the etiology of sodium abnormalities is often due to fluid imbalances rather than too much or too little sodium intake. However, it's important to note that a patient who receives a large amount of sodium in their IV fluids can certainly develop hypernatremia as a result. Now, when it comes to hyponatremia, the patient is at risk for significant neurological complications due to cerebral edema. Signs and symptoms of hyponatremia can range from confusion and lethargy to seizures and coma. So in general, sodium will be of great importance in patients who have fluid imbalances, renal dysfunction, and changes in level of consciousness. The next component in the basic metabolic panel is potassium. Now, potassium is the major cation inside the cell, and even small changes in the serum level can have a significant effect on your patient. It's important to understand that while the kidneys excrete potassium, they do not reabsorb potassium. So if the patient doesn't get enough potassium through their IV fluids, PO supplementation, or their diet, potassium levels can decrease pretty rapidly. Potassium levels are regulated in the body through a few different mechanisms. As sodium is reabsorbed, potassium levels decrease. Aldosterone increases renal losses of potassium. And acidotic states tend to increase serum potassium levels by shifting potassium out of the cell while alkalotic states do the opposite. They tend to decrease serum potassium levels by shifting potassium into the cell. So hyperkalemia and hypokalemia are common imbalances and both can cause serious cardiac dysrhythmias. The classic sign of hyperkalemia on the EKG is a tall, peaked T wave, and hypokalemia often causes frequent PVCs. Hypokalemia can occur for a wide range of reasons, including diarrhea and vomiting, Cushing syndrome, and even insulin administration. Remember that insulin unlocks the cell to let glucose enter, and potassium just comes along for the ride. If you have a patient with hypokalemia who is also taking digoxin, be very aware that they will be at very high risk for significant cardiac arrhythmias. Hyperkalemia can also occur for a lot of reasons, including renal failure, dehydration, crush injury, cellular necrosis, and administration of hemolyzed blood products. So, of course, there are many more. And your most common reason for watching potassium levels closely will be because your patient is taking a diuretic. This is 
the most common kind of day-to-day reason that you'd be looking at potassium levels. So loop diuretics, such as furosemide, cause hypokalemia. They're going to cause potassium to be wasted. Potassium-sparing diuretics, such as spironolactone, can cause hyperkalemia, actually, especially if the patient is receiving potassium supplementation. So if your patient's taking a diuretic, watch for potassium to either be too low, which is most of the time. Most of the time, the patient's on a loop diuretic. But if they're taking a potassium-sparing diuretic, then you're going to watch for hyperkalemia. All right, the next component of our basic metabolic panel is calcium. Though calcium is not very abundant in the serum, remember most of it is located in the bone and the teeth, it has a very important role in nerve impulse transmission, cardiac and skeletal muscle contraction, blood pressure regulation, and the formulation of blood clots. So a key concept to understand about calcium is the concept of bound versus free or ionized calcium. Free calcium is also sometimes called ionized calcium. So some of the serum calcium is bound to proteins and is not biologically active, while the other form is biologically active. And again, that other form is the free or ionized calcium. This is important to understand because when your patient has a low albumin level, and remember, albumin is a protein, so when the protein levels are low, the calcium level on that serum lab test will be falsely low because it's measuring both forms of calcium and does not accurately represent just that biologically active or ionized calcium level. So in this situation, it's important to calculate the serum ionized calcium level to get a better understanding of the patient's true calcium balance. You can use an online calculator to do this, or you can obtain an ionized calcium from the ABG without having to do any calculations. Now, the most common causes of hypercalcemia are hyperparathyroidism and cancer. Hypocalcemia can occur for a lot of different reasons, including large volume fluid resuscitation, and that would be due to hemodilution, and in massive blood transfusions. Recall that banked blood has citrate added to it to prevent it from coagulating. The citrate binds with calcium, leading to hypocalcemia, which explains why your patient may require calcium replacement after receiving blood products. Other causes for hypocalcemia include hypoparathyroidism, renal failure, acute pancreatitis, rhabdomyolysis, and intestinal malabsorption. Now, there are many signs and symptoms of calcium imbalance, and some of the most significant are cardiac-related. Hypercalcemia can cause bradycardia and cardiac arrest, while hypocalcemia can cause heart blocks, ventricular fibrillation, and torsades de points. It's also important to know that hypocalcemia can cause laryngospasm with strider that can lead to respiratory arrest. The next component of our basic metabolic panel is chloride. Chloride is the most abundant extracellular anion, meaning it's a negatively charged ion. It plays an important role in maintaining acid-base balance and works with sodium to maintain osmotic pressure and water balance. While hyperchloremia is not very common, it can occur with a variety of conditions including dehydration, 
hypernatremia, diabetic ketoacidosis, and with large volumes of sodium chloride administration. When chloride levels are elevated, the kidneys excrete bicarbonate as a compensatory mechanism, which leads to a specific type of acidosis called hyperchloremic acidosis. Hypochloremia can occur due to things like fluid volume overload, congestive heart failure, excessive gastric suction, vomiting, SIADH, Addison's disease, and the use of diuretics. Okay, now let's talk about CO2. On the basic metabolic panel, carbon dioxide is an indirect measure of bicarbonate, which tells us about acid-base balance. So don't confuse this with the PaCO2, which is a direct measure of carbon dioxide and obtainable from the ABG. Elevated CO2 levels in the serum are associated with metabolic alkalosis and severe vomiting and diarrhea, while decreased levels are associated with metabolic acidosis, renal failure, and diabetic ketoacidosis, of course, among others. I'm just pulling out a few common examples. So when you're looking at the BMP and you see CO2, don't think of hypercapnia like you would if you saw a high CO2 on the ABG. You're thinking about bicarbonate, which is also going to be telling us about acid-base balance. So CO2 on the BMP is an indirect measure of bicarbonate. Now let's look at glucose. Serum glucose on the BMP is pretty straightforward as it simply reflects the glucose level in the blood. A serum glucose is helpful in the clinical setting to catch hyper or hypoglycemia when the patient is not undergoing routine finger stick testing and is utilized when blood sugar levels fall outside the range of the glucometer. When the glucometer reads low or high, what this means is the patient's blood glucose can't be read by whatever range that glucometer can read. So you have to get a serum glucose reading to determine the exact value so that the patient gets the appropriate treatment. In addition, finger stick testing is not reliable on patients with poor perfusion, such as those in shock, so serum glucose testing would be utilized for those patients instead of finger stick glucose testing. The last two components are the BUN and the creatinine. So the BUN, you don't say bun, say BUN, measures the level of urea nitrogen in the blood. Urea is formed in the liver as a byproduct of protein metabolism and transported to the kidneys for excretion, so it's an indicator of the health of both of these vital organs. However, you will most often be evaluating the BUN as it relates to renal function since renal impairment is far more common than liver disease. One thing to take into account is the ratio of BUN to creatinine. When BUN rises more significantly than creatinine, this is called a high BUN to creatinine ratio and can be due to reduced blood flow to the kidneys, such as in dehydration and heart failure. Other reasons for a high BUN are renal insufficiency or renal disease, a high-protein diet, Addison's disease, and GI bleeding. Note that an elevated BUN is an expected finding in your patient who is on dialysis.
And then that other component, creatinine. Creatinine is a waste product of creatine phosphate, which is used in the contraction of skeletal muscle, which, of course, we do all day long, right? And it is excreted by the kidneys, which makes it a really great indicator of kidney function. Unlike BUN, which can be elevated for quite a few different reasons, Creatinine is essentially elevated in renal dysfunction and dehydration. When creatinine levels increase twofold, this is indicative of a 50% reduction in GFR. Many medications can cause renal damage, causing creatinine to increase. Common examples are cephalosporins, aminoglycosides, and chronic use of loop diuretics. So you'd want to be watching the creatinine level in those patients. Additionally, many medications rely on adequate renal function for excretion and dosing will be reduced in patients with renal impairment. So examples of medications that would be reduced would be things like lithium, enoxaparin, and allopurinol. This is just a small sample. There are actually quite a few that do need renal dosing when renal impairment is present. So while an elevated creatinine level is an expected finding in your dialysis patients, just like an elevated BUN is, you'll be watching creatinine levels very closely in patients with acute kidney injury, which can occur for a ton of different reasons. And a very common reason is that the patient has sepsis and is in shock. So the kidneys have been hypoperfused. There's organ damage with sepsis. Creatinine goes up. It's a very, very common scenario. And then another very common scenario is with the medication furosemide. It's really important to know the patient's creatinine level before administering furosemide as it can further cause renal damage. So I hope this quick overview of the basic metabolic panel helps you feel a little bit more confident when you're looking at your lab results, what you might be thinking about is going on with your patient and the significance of each of these components. So I hope to see you back here next week. We're going to be moving over into pediatric world and talking about hormonal disorders in children. So I will see you back here next week for that. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.